At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. So good to be with you this morning. We are in Romans chapter 7. Are you enjoying Romans? It's been so great for me. Uh, I just I feel like sometimes we think we know Romans better than we do. Um, so... So grateful for this time in the Word. Romans chapter 7, this passage is pretty thick, so I recommend that you be following along on your phone, um, on, your, uh, on, your dev- on your Bibles, if you have them here printed. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God in heaven, what a sacred moment of singing. We know that your presence is here with us, heavy with us. And we do welcome you as we sang. Father, another Sunday, another Lord's Day, when we gather to unite our voices and proclaim your greatness. Let this day be a day of deliverance, of awakening, of surrender. Let this be a day when we say no to death, sin, and law, and yes to life, the Spirit, and the Christ. This is the desire of our hearts, O King, O Healer, O Savior. So come, Spirit of God, and open our eyes that we may see wonderful, behold, wonderful things in your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Romans 7, verse 7. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous. And good. The word of the Lord. So t- today we come to a hotly debated and highly important text in Romans. It's hotly debated because um, people debate the identity of the I in this text. Who is this I person that Paul is talking about? Is it Paul himself as a Christian? Is it Paul before he was a Christian? Is it Paul as a Christian thinking back on his days as a non-Christian? Is it someone else entirely that he's talking about? But the highly important part stems from the fact that this is Uh, Paul's defense for the goodness of the law. Up until now, Paul has said some things that seem to question the good purpose of the law. He has said, through the law comes knowledge of sin in chapter 320. He has said that by works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. He has said that through the law comes wrath. And so it's not by keeping the law, but by trusting by faith in Jesus Christ that constitutes the new people of God. 
Now, if the law brings wrath, knowledge of sin, and no salvation, why was the law given in the first place? If the law leads to sin and to death, is the law itself sin? Is the law death? Now, let me just say that this part of Romans has spoken powerfully to many people throughout the centuries, both in bringing them to conversion and in giving them a deeper understanding of their inner struggles. And I have the same prayer for you. Listen to the words of Craig Lloyd, a pastor in Australia. Here's what he says. Romans 7 has a place of prominence in my heart for the role it played in my coming to a conviction of sin. I was in the fifth year of my medical degree and living a life totally oblivious to the gospel and the affront my sin was before the Lord. Yet in his grace, he chose to place two Christians in my life at that time. They explained the gospel to me in very clear terms. And yet I still found their words to be foolishness and unworthy of serious thought. So time went on. He did not respond. They stopped sharing. But one day he was alone and bored. And he picked up the Bible that they had given him that he had not read since they gave it to him. And so he goes on and says, I opened at a random. It opened to Romans 1, and I began to read. I found myself fascinated with the argument Paul was making, but I was not personally affected until I reached Romans 7, in particular verses 21 through 25, which read, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And so then he wrote, the spirit of God convicted me deeply. I was pierced to my soul. I understood sin. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I was lost before a holy God. I knew I was a wretched man needing to be delivered and only Jesus Christ could do it. What glory, right? Church, we need to do some careful thinking in order to do justice to this text before us. But let us not forget the ultimate goal of listening to God's word. That we be deeply convicted by the spirit of God, pierced to our souls. That we be aware that we are sinners, that we are lost before a holy God in need of deliverance. And only Jesus Christ can do it. So we're going to answer the two questions that Paul sets up in this text. Is the law sinful? Is the law death? Let's start with the first one. Is the law sinful? Romans 7 verse 7, Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but then when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. 
So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. As we dive in, let's first make clear who it is that Paul is talking about. Paul is describing the struggle the person here who seeks salvation through law, salvation through code, through constitution, through dogma, through some creed, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, through the power of the Spirit. So this text um, describes, is, is categorically true of all unbelievers and only episodically descriptive of believers. When either they give in to sin or when they allow sin to loom larger in their lives than does Christ. And we'll come back to that distinction later on. But Paul has written this section of the letter in such a general way that there's virtually no person that can read this and not identify with the struggle that he's describing. Now, interpreters often debate who's Paul talking about? Who does he have in mind? Is it Adam? Is it Israel? Is it Paul himself? Is it someone else? The reality is that in this section, we see parts of the story of Adam, the story of Israel, the story of Paul himself, and the story of every person that has attempted salvation by law apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And that would include God-fearing Gentile Christians that were a part of the church in Rome. A God-fearer was a Gentile, a non-Jewish person who held a Judaism in high regard. Maybe they even went to the synagogue, but never fully converted as a Jew. These were some of the first converts to uh, Christianity from among the Gentiles because they already understood a number of key biblical categories. Well, a God-fearing Gentile Christian could hear Romans 7 and see himself or herself as Paul describes the law in relation to sin and their attempt at doing what is right and yet their inability to follow through before they were Christians. But then as Christians, they could also see themselves in this text, especially when they gave sin the upper hand so that it loomed large in their lives, even though they are no longer as Christians under the law, they're no longer under the curse of sin and death. I've known Christians who live with a total absence or nearly total absence of the cross of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. They live with and speak more comfortably about sin. Their lives unfortunately resemble Romans 7, 7 through 25, where Christ and the Spirit are nearly absent and where law and sin loom large. This is when their lives are... Uh, barely newish rather than new in Christ. And so I say that this text is categorically true of all unbelievers because apart from Christ, all they have is law, but only episodically descriptive of Christians when they live as if they do not belong to the realm of Christ and of the spirit. So is the law sinful? Let's follow Paul's argument closely. Verse seven, he says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Paul gives an emphatic no as the answer. So here's the question. Why then does Paul associate the law so closely with sin? Now let me give you an illustration that I read in a commentary that does a really good job of teasing out what's going on here. Imagine that for your house, you want to install a new alarm system. Okay, you want to make your house safer. And so you go and you hire a company, and they're going to come, and they're going to install a whole new alarm system, protect your house. But the morning that the technicians are coming in, you wake up horribly sick. 
You just can't take care of this. And so you call on your neighbor and you ask him to please come in and let the technicians in. And so he kindly agrees to do so. And so when the technicians come in, your neighbor answers the door and they don't know any better. They think that your neighbor is you. And so he lets them in. You know, he follows them along as they install the thing, learning along the way how the whole system works, which gives him an idea and puts him in an ideal position himself to rob your house. So here's what Paul is saying. Just as the alarm system is good, the law of God is good. But if you introduce an error at a different place, like an untrustworthy neighbor who learns the system really well, then that system that is good is actually going to work against you and not for you. In fact, the system is going to make it easier for your neighbor to rob you. Just as the law makes it easier for sin to grow in you and deceive you. That's what Paul is saying. In verse 5 that we looked at in detail last week, here's what he said. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now that statement is provocative. As some people say, them's fighting words. Because as a Jew who thought high of the law, very highly of the law, as does Paul, how could it be that the law of God arouses our sinful passions and leads to death? And so Paul uses the rest of chapter 7 to answer this conundrum. And he says in verse 7, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness for apart from the law sin lies dead in previous chapters paul has told us that sin is not just something that we do that is wrong and here's where christians can be very naive in our understanding of sin sin is not just something that we do that is wrong sin is a power that controls you sin entered into the world when adam and eve decided to assert their independence from God. And from that point forward, every single human that's come after them has been under the sway of sin. Well, sin uses the law of God against us. Here's how. Paul gives the example of the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And what he says is, as soon as I knew that commandment, sin used it to produce in me all kinds of covetousness. I mean, think about it for your own life. When you hear a statement like, don't think of a red fire truck right now. What are you thinking of right now? A red fire truck, right? That's what happens for us with the commands of God, especially with the commandment not to covet. Coveting refers to our desires, the desires of our hearts, where we want more, not all desires, but those desires that we have where we want more. We want more of people, we want more of things, we want more of status, all kinds of things, and we're all guilty of it. And whether you've coveted a woman, or a man's attention, or riches, you know that simply by hearing you shall not covet, coveting doesn't stop. The opposite happens, does it not? Right? When we hear there's something that we can do, man, it makes us want to do it even more. 
Sometimes we even take pride in it. Oh, just tell me that I can't do something and doggone it, I'm gonna do it. Why? Why is that? Because that's what sin is at its core. Sin is our desire to assert our independence from God. And so a command of God is fertile ground for sin to grow. And that's what Paul is saying to us here. Sin uses the law against us. Look at verse 9. He says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. You see, one thing is to, um, to exist mildly aware of our failings, which is how unbelievers um, treat their wrongdoing. It's another thing altogether to be faced with a command of God and to realize at the same time that we like and are unable, are powerless to change what scripture forbids. Those are very different things. And so Paul says here, the commandment uh, promised life. How so? Because if you do not covet people or things, but only covet God, as Josh was saying in that prayer, God forgive us for the times when we've praised, not you, but all kinds of other things. But the commandment promised life because if we do not covet things or people, but God alone, we find life. That's true for all of God's commandments. But then we find that actually through the commandment, we get death. Why? Because we learn that we actually do covet people and things and not God. But the problem is not the law of God. The problem is sin in us, which is why Paul is able to conclude in verse 12, so the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous. And so we find that the law has power to shine the spotlight on sin. But then sin uses the commandment, the law, to deceive us. Sin uses the law as a magnet to draw us farther into sin. And so now that Paul has said that through the commandment, um, sin killed him, and that the commandment proved proved to be death for him, another question that arises is, is the law death? So is the law sinful? The answer was no. Is the law death? Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So what he's asking here is, is the law death? Did that which is good, the law, bring death to me? And again, Paul gives a resounding no. It was sin. Sin is what did it. And here we come upon one of those key, although counterintuitive purposes, for the giving of of the law, that sin might become sin and might be shown to be ever more sinful. I've shared with you before that uh, before I became a Christian, my view, so when I was a teenager, my view of women was sexualized and objectified. And I carried some guilt because of that view 
But I also found it very easy to justify my view because everyone around me did it. All the guys around me did it. And so I figure it can't be that bad. And see, there's a difference between wrongdoing and knowledge of sin. And so in that state, I, 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 I didn't feel great about that, but I very easily um, could just justify what I was doing. But then when I was 18 years old and I started looking at scripture and these two Christians uh, took me to different verses and one of them was 1 Timothy chapter 5. And it was the first time in my life that I was reading this. I read where scripture says to young men, treat younger women as sisters in all purity. And man, that hit me like a lightning bolt. I mean, I remember like it was yesterday, even though it happened 10,000 days ago. I felt forcibly, and I mean forcibly, backed into a corner by the word of God. I could no longer justify my objectification of women. Treat younger women as sisters in all purity. I realized how far, how far I was from God's command. And so that's what Paul is saying. It takes the law. See, before scripture, I mildly was aware of my wrongdoing. Faced with scripture, I understood sin in all its power over me. And so what Paul is saying is that it takes the law of God for sin to become sin. For us to know what sin is. Now, the next few verses are confusing to read in English and in Greek. And I think it's partly because of, uh, I think it's partly Paul's attempt at showing the confusion, if not the schizophrenia, of living under sin. I mean, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about why humanity lives so confused? Why are simple things so difficult? Why is it so difficult to discern how decent people at a company can end up with such a toxic culture? Why is it that spouses who love one another can end up so disconnected and unhappy with one another? Why is it that we constantly rationalize things and behavior that are dehumanizing of others and destructive to us? Why? Why is that? Well, listen to what Paul says sin does in us. Follow this closely. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Didn't you feel dizzy trying to keep up with what he's saying? You see, Paul sees a split within himself. On the one hand, he has the law of God, which is good, which gives him, leads him to know the will of God and to be able to say, that's what I want. That's what I want to do. But on the other hand, he knows sin, which is evil and strong, dwells within him. And because he has the law of God and he knows the law of God, he hates sin. But, and here's where the deepest struggle lies, he finds himself doing the very thing he hates. Can you relate? 
You know as a married man that flirting with your coworker is wrong, even subtly, but you still do it. You know that taking opioids will ruin your life, but you still do it. You know that more shopping is gonna leave you empty, but you still do it. So you agree that it's good to not flirt, that it's good to stay away from drugs, that it's good to reject shopping as escapism or or status, but you can't stop. You, You can't stop doing these things. Why? What is that? It's that universal, universal principle that law cannot overcome our flesh. Law cannot overcome our sinful desires. In fact, our sinful desires are strengthened by law. Law just shows us how messed up we are. I mean, think of our society. Think of embezzlement and murder and racism and rape and fraud. All the things that ruin our society. The perpetrators knew it was wrong all along, but they could not stop themselves. And it's not just that some people have a stronger moral will than others. That is not Paul's point. He knows that. First of all, even the strongest among us have a breaking point. But secondly, it's not just about moral will. Those who do well by sheer will, power, are swollen with pride. So as it relates to love for God and love for people, they're no better. So that's not the point. The point is not to white knuckle it. I was talking to someone after the, the first service and, and he just said, man, like, you know, this whole sermon, I feel like for the last six months I've been working on not white knuckling it. And just realizing that, I, that that's not the way forward. I must surrender, he said. And so what's the conclusion? What does Paul say here? Look at verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Listen, civil war is an awful thing. Whether it's between the North and the South in the 19th century, those four awful years, or on a lighter note, between Captain America and Iron Man. You know, in civil war, internal forces that should be working together war against each other, and the result is not life, but death. That's the predicament of the person that's still caught in the death, sin, law triangle that Paul has been talking to us about in chapters 5, 6, and 7. There are two principles at work here. In his inner being, he says, he delights in the law of God. But in his members, in the members of his body, sin is at work, making him captive to the law of sin. Look at the last half of verse 25. He says, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
That's Paul's conclusion. It's an all-out civil war within the same person. It's a desperate situation. This person is powerless and wretched, which leads to the agonizing cry of verse 24 and makes it just soothing cold water over dry, thirsty land. Wretched man that I am, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? The law cannot deliver him. It's what Paul put his faith in, his trust in as a Jew. It's what Israel put, put her trust in as the people of God. It's what every religious person throughout history has trusted for deliverance. Some law, some code, some creed, some constitution, some dogma. It's what every secular irreligious person has trusted for deliverance. Their autonomy and right to self-governance becomes their own law. But the result is always the same. Whatever your law, sin will pounce on it like a parasite, like a virus, and make you wretched. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The result will always be an all-out civil war within you. So where is deliverance? Where is deliverance? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's it. Not law, not any principle, a person. Only a person can deliver you. And his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where the law fails, Christ prevails. Where the law fails, Christ prevails prevails. Say it with me. Where the law fails, Christ prevails. Can we praise him for that? Can we praise our God for this deliverance that nothing has been able to bring? So let me leave you with three statements for you to ponder as you reflect on this precious, precious text. First, the law is good but it can't produce good societies. The law is good, but it cannot produce good societies. God's law is good and righteous and holy and pure and perfect. Any human law that is good derives its goodness from God's law. And so we need to think highly of the law. We need to thank God that law and not anarchy carries the day in our nation. Have you heard of Lebanon of late? Of so many other places around the world that need to be in our prayers? Thank God for the rule of law. But remember that law merely restrains evil. It cannot purge it. And because evil is merely restrained, evil marches on throughout the generations, throughout all cultures, throughout all times. It will continue to march on. And so fight for good laws. Absolutely fight for them. But do not be deceived into thinking that a perfect society can be birthed through law or sustained through law. Only God's king can do that. Where the law fails, Christ prevails. Second, if you're a Christian, praise God. Praise God that Christ has set you free from sin, death, and law. 
Praise him for it. Paul in this section is describing the struggle, the struggle of the person who's still caught in that death, sin, law triangle. The person who only knows law to restrain them from giving full vent to the evil within them. They do not know the love of God in their hearts through the cross of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're two completely different things. If you live by law, then sin has taken you captive and the result will be death. You feel that death now, but you will fully face it for all eternity. Or you can live by faith in Jesus Christ, in which case the Spirit of God sets you free and the result is life. You taste that fullness of life now, but you will fully enjoy it for all eternity. Death, law, sin. Christ, spirit, life. If you belong to Jesus Christ, he has set you free from death, law, and sin. Now you may say, okay, I'm a Christian. And when I read Romans 7, I see my struggle in life. I feel this way. I love God and I hate sin, but I do the very thing that I hate. Yes, Yes, because in this life, even after you come to Christ, actually, that's when the struggle with sin begins. Does it not? I mean, that's what, before that, like I said, you're just mildly aware that you do wrong things. It's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You keep going. It's when you become a Christian that the battle with sin is full on. That's what chapter six made abundantly clear. But do not be confused. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you do not belong to that triangle of death, sin, and law. Don't confuse it. You're not sold under sin. You've been set free, which means that the greater power at work within you is not sin, is the Spirit of God. And the way to become righteous is not by keeping law, but by trusting Jesus Christ, especially his death for you. I hope you did the homework I left you with last week to ponder the beauties of the cross. And the outcome of your life is not death, but life, true, full life that transgresses death and emerges victorious in the new world. So don't let sin loom large in your life. If you print this text that we're going through today and you circle, I encourage you to do this. You circle every time the word sin and law and death and commandments show up, you will see that it fills up the page. You will not see Christ at all except at the very end and you will not see the spirit at all. Let me show you. Look at that. That is not who you are in Christ. That's not who you are. Romans 7, that section does not describe you if you have come savingly to Jesus. So in your mindset, don't live as if sin still rules you. And in practice, don't invite sin back in. That's like when a prostitute is rescued from her pimp at great cost to the rescuing team, but only when, when she's in a moment of weakness, she texts him again and starts getting sucked back in into that vicious old cycle of slavery. You do not belong to law, sin, and death. 
That does not describe you. That does not describe your union with Christ. You're not under law. You're not under the curse of sin and death. It's why I said earlier that this passage is categorically true for all unbelievers because apart from Christ, that's all they have. Law, sin, and death. And it's only episodically descriptive of Christians. It describes you. This passage does. Christian, only in those times, those episodes, when you allow yourself to be lured back in by sin. And so you start living, thinking, and operating as if you're again in the realm of death sin and law but that's not you in Christ and so praise him praise him that he has set you free from that deadly identity and finally if you're not a Christian if you're here and you've never given your life to Christ maybe you would say that you've been white knuckling it like that gentleman said to me earlier And he understood, he's beginning to understand surrender. But if that's you, if you've never given your life to Christ, run, run to Jesus for deliverance. Run to him for deliverance. I've never met one person, regardless of background, that could not identify with the all out civil war going on within them. I don't care where they lived in the world, at what time in history, literature is filled with this very thing. This angst, this struggle that every human feels. But I've met person after person, successful or not, who feels hopeless. Who feels that they cannot truly change and other people cannot truly change. Who sees the, 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 just the utter emptiness of going from relationship to relationship and job to job and diet to diet. As Henry David Thoreau famously said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Outwardly, we project a confident persona. Inwardly, we're crumbling and we know it. Wretched man, woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where the law fails, Christ prevails. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for this precious word. Father, we thank you for this trek, for this journey that we've had through Romans 5, 6, 7. Thank you, O oh God. Father, I pray for those who are here and who have never given their life to Christ. Maybe they've tried aspects of religion, aspects of a certain law they've made up, a certain creed, and they've lived by that, thinking that would deliver them. But Father, I pray that you would give them eyes to see the futility, the emptiness, the place where it will leave them. And I pray, Lord, that they would run, run, run to Jesus in faith in contrition, in repentance, in surrender. Father, I pray that they would stop white-knuckling it and come to you and surrender, even today. Bring them into your presence, O oh God. And Father, I pray for those of us who 
know Christ, who do not belong to that deadly triangle of death, sin, and law. Father, I pray that we would not give sin the upper hand. I pray, Father, that we would know that that's not where we belong. That is not where we should live. That is not where our mind should be set. Where there's almost nothing of Christ and nothing of the Spirit of God. Father, I pray that we would know that we belong in Romans 8, where we are going, where the ocean is coming, and we shall swim. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you for your deliverance. Thank you, Father, that you have not left us as wretched human beings wallowing in our sin, the cesspool of our sin. Thank you for that deliverance, oh Lord Jesus. You are our King. You are our healer. You are our Savior. And it is our honor to behold you. Because as we behold you, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.